Today on Ag News Daily. Right, catch some flag from some of the listeners because that seems to be the thing on Twitter and TikTok and everything else that, oh, no chill's bad and go chill. Um, here we have to no chill or we, all the dirt would be run down the creek. Good afternoon and welcome to a Wednesday episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Dawson Schmidt once again. I almost said Dawson Howell because I, I don't I guess my brain is just trying to combine Delaney Howell, Dawson Schmidt, but I am joined by Dawson. Delaney is actually in Kansas City today at an event for the National Agri-Marketing Association. She is out there meeting with ag industry professionals, potential advertisers for the network. So she's getting things done today. Yeah, it seems like Delaney always has something on her plate. And so that's why I'm kind of happy or always happy to help, you know, fill in whenever I can and something I enjoy doing and helping the load with you guys. Absolutely, Dawson. We are thankful to have you help us out. Sometimes it can get a little intense hosting a daily podcast Monday through Friday. Every time I tell somebody what I do for work, they uh, are amazed that we produce content so regularly. But it is definitely something that I enjoy doing because I always like talking to folks in the industry and talking about the industry as a whole. And we have a pretty great interview geared up to talk about corn and bean crop in Iowa later on. But before we get to that, Dawson, we've got to talk about some news. So what do you have for us today? Well, it seems like a lot of bipartisanship is going on in the legislation that is kind of bringing a lot of good news to the egg industry. But recently, a bipartisan group of senators actually introduced legislation on Tuesday that would eliminate a national mandate requiring oil refineries to blend corn-based ethanol for their fuel mix. And that proposal would kind of slam corn growers as it likely would keep our corn use down to a, a minimum. And that comes from Republican Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania and Democratic Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey are part of are part of that group introducing the bill that represents states with oil refineries that are that claim that the mandates are too expensive and threaten refinery jobs. The lawmakers have been pushing the Biden administration for relief for the for those refineries and of their obligations under the renewable fuel fuel standard that has been implemented in the U.S. They say other biofuels have lower greenhouse gas emissions, and that's kind of what they're trying to push here is to use more advanced options rather than corn-based ethanol because they claim that it has, that it produces less emissions into the atmosphere. The Advanced Biofuels Business Council also spoke out on the bill Tuesday against it and saying that the proposal doesn't do anything for advanced biofuels and they don't appreciate being used to greenwash a top priority for a handful of of oil refineries in the country. The Biden administration also came out saying that it's kind of pushing back their uh, oil or their refinery mandates, uh, probably most likely for political issues after this bill was introduced, because we saw a lot of push and pull come from the Biden administration as far as renewable fuels. And so I'm curious to see on where this is going to go, because it seems like we have different things clashing within the legislature right now that might affect, you know, how corn how corn is used later on. 
You know, Dawson, you're you're right. They have delayed some of these mandates due to political concerns. The White House has delayed the annual process meant to decide how much ethanol and other biofuels that U.S. oil refineries need to blend into their fuel each year as they are seeking a solution for an issue that kind of pits refinery workers against corn farmers. Lawmakers who represent constituents from both industries have been pushing the Biden administration on the issue for months. Refiners want low volumes of biofuels to keep costs down, while the farm industry wants high volumes to pump up sales of corn-based ethanol and other products. The White House has largely stayed out of the discussions, but is now hoping to take control of the matter. White House officials declined to comment on whether the administration had delayed the process, but said that it was, quote, not involved in the specific rule drafting process. But it's seeming more and more likely that it's been because of political issues. The White House review comes as the Biden administration is hoping to keep Democrats unified on pushing through a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure package that funds most of the president's top priorities. Democrats who have slim majorities in both chambers of Congress are likely going to have to move the bill along a party line vote. So like you said, Dawson, uh, a little bit of politics, of course, kind of playing a role there in that delay. But other than that, I want to move things over talking about some things not really dealing with legislature. Syngenta says that trials of its new corn herbicide this year are showing positive results against glyphosate-resistant weeds. Minnesota-based R&D scientist Ryan Lenz says control is very good on the most resistant weeds, including giant ragweed and common ragweed. He was quoted as saying, Acheron GT is controlling these two difficult-to-control weeds very well at 91% control compared to Halix and other competitive herbicides. Scott Coley, Syngenta R&D scientist, says that the extra length of residual control from Acheron GT is a huge benefit in his territory of Illinois and Kentucky, where there's heavy pressure from water hemp and Palmer amaranth. Acheron GT has four active ingredients and three modes of action and will be available to growers in 2022. Syngenta says that it will continue to offer its post-emergent Halix GT in addition to Acheron GT next year. So folks, this is something you're interested in, it will be hitting its shelves next year. So keep an eye out for that. Well, kind of keeping the lines on crop production, potash has hit its highest price in eight years, pegging at $500, $501 per ton. The fertilizer for the fourth week in a row saw the largest month-to-month gain, increasing 10% from June to the average price of $501 per ton. Uh, And this marks the first time that it's had an average price above $500 since the fourth week of September back in 2013 when it was at that $500 price level. Another fertilizer that's kind of squeaking up there is DAP as it pushed forward at 5% more expensive compared to the prior month, now at an average of $693 per ton. The Dow Jones reported that the fertilizer prices, specifically the ammonia and DAP prices, could see a decline in the next uh, six months. However, we've seen such such a large increase the past pretty much year. While fundamentals mean prices will stay at relatively high levels compared to a year, the firm forecasts that the average price of DAP in the second half of 2021 
at $488 per ton compared to the $575 it currently holds. I was talking to a lot of farmers this earlier this year or a growing season that seems like a lot of them locked in their prices for the pretty much this growing season. So they got lucky with that. Others, not so much. And so here we're seeing more, uh, here we're seeing prices get higher. And so I'm really curious to see on, you know, if they do stay elevated on it and if farmers will lock in their prices this year again, or wait until next year when hopefully prices do go down a little bit, but I'm really interested to see on what is going to happen there, especially with supply and demand. Well, Dawson, I just have one other story that I want to share with you today, and I'm going to kick things over to India. Unfortunately, a 11-year-old boy has died in India from a bird flu virus of the H5N1 strain, the first fatality in the country, highlighting a potential new risk for the world's second most populous nation battling the coronavirus pandemic. The boy was admitted at New Delhi's premier All India Institute of Medical Sciences on July 2nd and died yesterday after a multi-organ failure. Health workers treating the patient and the boy's family have been kept in isolation and authorities have launched contact tracing. In the boy's home state, the animal husbandry department has not found any suspected cases of bird flu and has stepped up surveillance. India has seen more than half a dozen bird flu outbreaks in poultry in the past two decades, all of which were brought under control with no human cases reported in the country previously. I'm not sure that this is the first case that we've seen in humans from bird flu in India, but this is the the first reported death, unfortunately. So I'm going to be keeping my eye out on that. We've been talking quite a bit about bird flu just in 2021. Haven't really heard much in the past couple of weeks. So this is kind of some breaking news here. I raise the question if we are going to see a couple of other countries kind of follow suit with India and kind of tracking and tracing a little bit more and paying a little bit more attention to bird flu, but some unfortunate news this Wednesday. For sure. It sounds like a lot of viral cases is going to stay in the headlines for quite a while, even as we, you know, seem like we're almost out of this pandemic. But just one more bit of news that I have here is that the Senate Judiciary Committee will be holding a hearing today for the ag labor reform. Iowa Republican Chuck Grassley says that the seasonal H-2A program uh, will be under review, saying that the program was created decades ago to secure a stable flow of legal agricultural labor into our country. Unfortunately, it doesn't work well for many ag employers, especially in Iowa. On the call with reporters yesterday, he said that that's because animal agriculture and egg processing are not seasonal businesses. It seems like a lot of H-2A programs are wanting to extend beyond you know, the seasonal work that they usually start in about the spring and then end in the fall when harvest starts. But there's still some things to do when it comes to you know, out-of-season work as well. But Chuck Grassley says that the the reform is also hoping to streamline the program and also reduce some red tape and address the high cost of using the program. Uh, Some some groups have came out saying that this is going to be better for ag companies, however, not as much for the farm workers. So it's really interesting to see on how that will develop and what will change and, you know, see if it encourages more farm workers to come to the U.S. under this program or if it'll actually deter them. Well, Dawson, it seems that we're both out of news. So what do you say we get into the markets? I'd say we get right into it. 
in the corn contract, the September unchanged to close at 571 and three quarters, the December up two and three quarter cents to close at 568 and a half. In soybeans, the August contract down three cents to close at 1440 and a half. The September down a half cent to close at 13.98 and a half. The November up one and a half cents to close at 13.90. In the wheat, the September contract up 10 and a half cents to close at 7.10 and three quarters. The September up 10 and a quarter cent to close at 7.10 and three quarters. The December up 10 and three quarter cents to close at 7.19 and a half. Heading over to livestock, live cattle, green across the screen here, starting out in the August contract, up 27 and a half cents, close at 120 and five cents. The October up 55 cents, close at 125.25. The December up 62 and a half cents, close at 131 and five cents. The feeder cattle green again here. And the August contract up 125 to close at 156.77 and a half. The September up 152 and a half to close at 159 and 30 cents. The October up 132 and a half to close at 161 and 10 cents. Lean hogs, the August contract up 157 and a half to close at 106.57 and a half. The October up 137 and a half to close at 92.40. And the December up 80 cents to close at 85.32 and a half. Rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures, the July unchanged on the day to close at 1666, the August down 14 cents to close at 1650, and the September down 26 cents to close at 1662. With that, Dawson, I'm going to kick it over to our conversation with Adam Hansen talking about his soybean and corn crop. Well, today on the podcast, we're talking to Adam Hansen, who is a Southwest Iowa farmer. You might know him from Twitter, but Adam, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us about what's going on at your operation today. Thank you, Ashton. It's good to be here. We are certainly glad to have you on, Adam. We always like talking to folks about what's going on at their operation and this planting and and growing season seems to be an interesting one. But before we get into what your crop is looking like, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're actually growing? Well, I'm a fifth generation uh, corn and soybean farmer, farm with my my parents um, who originally farmed with my grandparents and my dad got started farming when he came home from college. And uh, I've, I've been in the operation now full-time since 2015 after some different uh, stints in other other areas of agriculture, um, one being ethanol and then another being uh, being precision, precision ag, precision farming. So um, I got my true passion now doing what I love. We, we farm uh, mainly in well, Audubon and Guthrie County probably about a split between the two counties as far as where our acres are at. Um, we also do some custom farming and I do some custom spraying and stuff on the side as well as operate my own uh, precision ag business on the side, selling precision planting and um, helping guys with uh, 
GPS and, and different stuff too. So, uh, got a lot going on sometimes too much. <laughs> uh, but I love what I do and I wouldn't, wouldn't have it any other way. Well, Adam, kind of getting into it right here, uh, with this growing season, it seemed like a lot of guys were in the field pretty early this year. Uh, what they're cooperating, you know, possibly getting ahead even, could you give us some insight as to if that happened with your operation and if you experienced the same thing? Um, I, we, we, we got started early this year for us, um, compared to, to past years, but we are 100% no-till. So the whole thing always is, I know I'll probably catch some flack from some of the listeners. Cause that seems to be the thing on Twitter and TikTok and everything else that, Oh, no tills bad. And you got to till, um, here we have to no till or we, all the dirt would be run down the creek. But, um, we, uh, we started planting. I was actually just going to look at my iPad here and, and see when we started planting corn for sure. Um, I want to say the around the 20th of, uh, 20th of April, uh, actually not till the 20, 20, 29th, sorry. Um, and we also started planting beans that same day, uh, as well. Um, never, never had we started planting beans that early. I don't think in April ever, um, used to always be when dad was farm with grandpa, it was always mother's day before they started planting beans. So, um, we're definitely, definitely changing some things around. So Adam, I want to talk about weather a little bit because I think that that kind of played a key factor, of course, when folks actually got into the field. So why don't we talk a little bit about weather when you were initially planting and then what it's looked like throughout the summer? Have you guys gotten a good amount of rain or are you uh, kind of still hoping to get some because a lot of folks are still in a bit of a drought? Well, we, uh, we've been dry since... Um, you know, last year at this time, if not before, um, it seems like this year we've been catching rains at almost exactly the right time. Um, I think I told my, our one agronomist we work with, uh, here a, oh, it's probably been right ago, right at a month ago today. Um, I said, I wish it would just cut loose and rain, carry on and, and burn up or, get a hailstorm and that very night <laughs> we got some rain and we caught a little bit of hail um about two miles east of uh the home place here and and stripped a little corn but didn't uh nothing like some of the stuff you you've seen on twitter up in northwest iowa and around um we were we were pretty fortunate fortunate to that but um i do have one picture on twitter of my son taken the 13th of June and the corn was, uh, Oh, I think it was probably about his waist then. And he's probably about four foot right at four foot tall, but had another picture I posted on there about exactly a, a month later, probably been a little, little more than a week ago here. And, uh, corn was just about ready to start tasseling. And, um, it, it's, 
we're, we're really fortunate for the year we're having to have things look, look as good as they do at this point. I think most farms were sitting on between seven to nine inches of rain in the growing season. And that's, I think probably about four to, to five inches, at least behind the 10, 10 year average. So we're, uh, we're feeling pretty, pretty fortunate at this point. Adam, I'm kind of looking at that picture right now, which your corn is looking pretty good, but a lot of places around the country, it seems like if you get in the States, things seem really spotty in, special, in certain areas when it comes to getting rain. For Southwest Iowa specifically, do you see a little bit more consistency rather than spottiness in you know crop growth? And if all the, if all the corn is trying to look more uniform than not? I, I think in this area, um, I would say probably the uh, Audubon County and, and maybe a little bit west into Shelby County. And I haven't done much traveling down into Cass or Adair County, but I know Guthrie County, the further east you go in Guthrie County, the drier it, uh, it looks. That same storm I talked about, it's probably been, like I said, a month ago today. Um, there was actually two different storms that night that got us um, one about three thirty in the morning that just was probably three, four miles wide and, uh, just moved from North to South at a narrow band and, and really soaked some of this area pretty well. Um, I, I, I guess I shouldn't say pretty well. We've probably had four inches of rain in, in the last, I don't know, month and a half, but that is, uh, you know, the majority of our rain we've had for the growing season. Adam, before we got started recording here, I asked you if cupping in soybeans was on the table for discussion, but you're not really experiencing that in your beans. So let's go ahead and talk about what your, your bean crop is looking like. Um, bean crop this year, I'm actually sitting in the sprayer, uh, stopped out in the middle of the field right now. Um, these beans are at R3, so we're hitting them with some fungicide, insecticide, and uh, trying something new again this year, and uh, hitting them with a foliar, which is something we've we've never done before um, as well. Um, our beans are all Enlist E3s, and this year, the only spots I see cupping is um, the really, really dry compacted spots on side hills and maybe you know gateways stuff like that but we uh we really i'm i'm impressed at our our bean stand um we planted a little deeper this year than normal and i think it it probably paid off because we were making sure we were planting in moisture so um i'm pretty really very overall happy with the look of our bean crop at this point well, Adam, kind of keeping along with that, even though you're not seeing as much cupping this year, it seems to be that's still a hot topic as it is every year. And, it, and a lot of fingers are being pointed around. Did you, with this year, did you feel a lot of pressure as to how you're planting your bean crop and, you know, what you're putting on it versus, you know, maybe what you've done in the past or what other people are also doing around you? Um, we've run, we run enlist now. This is the second year. Uh, the first, well, three years ago, we did have 
actually three years ago, we had uh, GT27 Liberty Roundup Liberty beans. Um, we're not as happy with with our results that that year um, as we we are this year and 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 last year. Uh, and then the year before that, we did have extend beans, and I'm I'm glad we shied away from that just because there's so much controversy that goes with that and added stress um you know as a as an operator uh both on our our own acres and and doing some custom acres i guess i prefer not to have that that hanging over your head because it it makes things a lot uh less stressful than they you know than they already can be as a farmer and experience and weather and markets and and everything else that gets thrown at us. Well, Adam, we'll let you get back to those beans, but I just want to thank you once more for coming on and chatting with us today. You bet. Thank you. Again, a big thank you there to Adam for joining us to talk about his crop this year. He was in the sprayer, so I'm glad that we got to catch him. But folks, if you want to tune into any of our past episodes that we've had discussing crop, we've done a couple of those in the past few weeks. So if you want to tune in on agnewsdaily.com, you can do so there or wherever you get your podcasts. With that, Dawson, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.